Y'all know we back. Welcome, guys, to another From Hood to Good Banger. Got another one lined up for you. Check this out. Today, we got the contrarian going against the grain. We're going to be talking about four quarters of life. It's just another amazing episode. We got Miles Wakeham. And what makes this story special, Miles has started many businesses. He's been a millionaire three times, lost it twice. Now he's a multimillionaire, of course, but he's going to share his failures and just going against the grain. Self-admittedly got lucky in the beginning, blew up, lost it all, got it back. Want to remind you guys that anything is possible. So check this one out, Miles Wakeham. And if you don't want to hear the whole thing, I'll tell you real quick. Just go to BeUnconstrained.com. Check them out on the Unconstrained Podcast. My man Miles is going to drop some gems for you guys. You know we had to extract that genius. So thank you for tuning in. Let's get to that episode. Yeah, yeah. What's going on, world? We back with another From Hood to Good episode. Your boy, Ronnie Jacks, holding it down each and every day. Today, I got another special, special episode lined up for you guys, and I am super, super excited about it. His name is Miles, and you know that journey is Miles. His (laughs) name is Miles Wakeham. (laughs) He's not from America originally, but multimillionaire, free and unconstrained. Listen, guys, I'm telling you, this guy is somebody that you will want to listen to. He didn't graduate high school, didn't go to college, but he's a self-made uh, businessman, technologist. Like, it's so many credentials. I can't even list them all. I can't even name them all. But I'm, man, I'm blown away. And we got another one lined up for you guys. Another hook from Hood to Good Banker. So, Miles. Say what's up to the people. How you doing? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I appreciate it. So, Miles, um, let's just get right into the nitty gritty. How did this all happen? Um, take us back to the beginning. Like, like even your mindset. Like, I didn't even speak about your businesses. I didn't. I didn't speak about pretty much anything. But let's let's go from the beginning. How did you get here? Well, I was a kid that was raised in uh, a city in Australia um, called Adelaide, which is on the south central coast of Australia. It's kind of doesn't go anywhere. I mean, it's a city that sort of who knows why they put a city there that they did. But um, I grew up pretty much as a what we would call in Australia, a free range kid. In other words, there's no, you know, you ride your bicycle down into the national parks and there was no (laughs) safety net I guess Um, and so growing up that way I pretty much no one told me any rules Uh, I was an only child so I didn't even have any brothers and sisters to guide me along the way and my parents were quite old when they had me so I I tend to be left alone to kind of work things out on my own Um, my mother stuck a violin under my chin when I was five years old and told me I had to join the symphony orchestra. Funny thing is I did by the age of 12, I was in the state's junior symphony orchestra of all things, but I just was lucky enough to be blessed with, um, the ability to 
sense things, particularly through music. I found music was an outlet that allowed me to see what was going on in the world, which is weird, but it kind of worked out that way. Um, I got put in a, a, a high school, which was one of those private education, kind of think like um, Harry Potter. <laughs> that sort of suit and tie kind of, you know, prim and proper school. And after a couple of years, I realized I'm not learning anything here. I'm, I had these outside of school, I got interested in electronics and radio. And eventually that turned into computers. And I, I remember one day I went to my father and said, look, you're wasting all this enormous amount of money sending me to this school that I don't even, I'm not learning squat here. I'm learning more playing on my computer and with a soldering iron working out how things work than, you know, learning some biology class in school. So how about this? How about you let me leave school and let me start a business? Because there's this thing called the personal computer. And in 1978, when I got into it, no one knew how to program them. And I worked it out. Um, and I said, listen, why don't you let me uh, leave school and start a business? And... <laughs> For a 15-year-old kid, you know, to say that to their parents is pretty weird. Um, but in those days, you know, there were no rules. Um, I was, like I said, I was a free-range kid. I was supposed to make up the solutions from what I could see. And if you're not fed any problems, how do you know what a solution is? I said, the only way I'm going to find out what the problems of the world are is to go out into it. Anyway, I must have made a pretty decent argument. My father let me go and he said, sure, all right, it's on you, kid. Don't expect me to bail you out if you fall in your face. I'm like, sure, it's fine. I'll, you know, buck stops here. I'm, I'm, I'm cool with that. So I started some businesses. I mean, I had some jobs because I needed to understand how the workforce worked. Um, they were depressing. <laughs> um, and I realized by the age of about 17, I got to do this on my own. So I ended up uh, starting a computer software company. We started writing software for the various places around the city where I lived. And they were things like government departments and corporations. You'd think that some 17-year-old kid would never be able to get in front of anybody in those sort of organizations. But, but here's the weird thing. Nobody else knew how to program these damn computers, right? So I used the fact that I knew something they didn't. And I said, well, you, you, you can disparage me for my age as much as you want, but you need your software written. Why don't you let me have a shot at it? And a couple of people said, you know, give this kid a shot. And I did. And then one thing led to another. You know, one success allows you to leverage it and get to another success. And we were starting to get clients. I ended up writing software for one of the universities who I never went to because I didn't finish high school. And I've got the universities paying me to write their software for them. I mean, go figure, right? Um, I started realizing that the mantras or the paradigms that were out there in this so-called Western world, um, they didn't make any sense because here's a kid writing software. I ended up writing software that ran a contracts and billing system for a $5 billion submarine project for a defense contractor. I read it on a Macintosh. I mean, this was in the early 80s. This stuff never would happen today. But back then, you made up the rules as you went along because you found yourself in a place where there was a large amount of demand for something and very little supply. Mm 
And I guess that's kind of where it started. And then at the age of 25, I met a girl while I was vacationing in Hawaii, which ended up landing me in Los Angeles. Um, unexpectedly, I got married and then found I couldn't leave the country because of some immigration thing the government were doing. So I was bummering around Los Angeles for about six months. I wasn't allowed to work. So I ended up walking into every guitar center in LA and Hollywood, just, you know, playing because I was a guitarist. And um, I started realizing there were all these bands out there that wanted musicians. So I'd started applying. I mean, what else am I going to do, right? I've got nothing to do. My wife's working because somebody had to pay for the rent and I couldn't. So I ended up joining some bands. In the end, those bands did pretty well and they allowed me to get into the underbelly of Hollywood and, and the recording engineering field. And that became something I did. And that was a side thing. But when I eventually did get my right to work, I ended up interviewing for a bunch of places. No one would have me because here's this kid from another country with absolutely no on-the-ground experience in the United States to be able to say, hey, I can do this stuff. And he's telling people he wrote this multi-billion dollar billing system for submarines and he, he did this stuff for universities. He did this stuff for government and corporations. But he's a, you know, he's a kid. He's like 25. What the hell? He doesn't deserve a shot in our company. I've got more no's than I've ever seen in my life. I reckon probably at 23 no's on every single interview. And I'm like, you need somebody to fix your damn computers, people. I'm here. Hello. And they're like, we don't know you. You didn't get a college degree at UC Berkeley or you didn't do. And I'm like, yeah, really? Are you serious? Meanwhile, you ain't shipping product because your systems are down. And you're worried about my credentials? Anyway, one thing led to another. I did get a break in the end that it gave me some experience, got me in front of a bunch of headhunters. And one day they stuck me in, uh, in an interview with this startup that was in um, Southern California that was in a, I guess, you know, the one of those, like they have these mobile offices they wheeled into a parking lot because <laughs> um, these guys were building their, their buildings. They didn't have anything yet. So I ended up going into this mobile office within this, this mob of <laughs> really ill-prepared people trying to interview people to fill roles like they needed somebody to take care of some software development. And I went in there and they looked at me and they probably, in, in retrospect now, I can look back on it, they probably were thinking, I wonder if he thinks we're serious, like we're in this crappy old trailer office thing and he's being interviewed for a job. Maybe he won't, he won't take it because we're not serious. And on my side of the table, right, I'm thinking I'm going to go through the same no's I had all the time when they can't validate my credentials, blah, blah, blah. In the end, because we were both at that starting point, <laughs> they gave me a job. And I, you know, they gave, they give you all these benefits. And I was new to the United States at this point. I don't really understand what any of that stuff was. They give you like healthcare and things like that. Well, great. I wasn't sick. I didn't need it, but I'll take it. And they give you a salary and the salary was average. So I'll take that. And then they said, well, we'll give you these things called stock options. And I'm like, I don't even know what that means. So give me whatever, you, you know, we'll give you like, I don't know, 20,000 shares in blah, blah. I'm like, None of this makes any sense to me, right? What do you need me to do? So I got to work and I got their, their stuff done. And 
what I didn't realize was about, I guess about four months later, this company, which was a medical company, they did, they invented some, they had some medical thing I didn't even understand. They biotechnology, they called it that back then. So I'm like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I'm fixing your computers. Yeah, I'm right writing your software. I don't know what you do. All these guys in white lab coats, right? So um, I got approval on a drug. And apparently this was a big deal. I'm like, okay, whatever. And next thing you know, the company went from a couple of hundred people to 3,800 people and they made $4 billion in sales in the first year. And, and that company was Amgen, the world's largest biotechnology corporation. Um, I was at the ground level with that. And I rode that out for about five or six years because I needed to stay with the company to vest the stock options. And by the time I left there, I was worth a million, over a million bucks. So it wasn't, it was unexpected. I didn't think I deserved it because I didn't think like I'd actually worked to generate that sort of money. But, you know, but you had secretaries in the, in the company driving around in Mercedes and I'm looking at going, holy cow, man, where do these people get this money? And I started realizing, oh, it's how wonderful medical system, isn't it? That's what's caused this, this, this money. So anyway, that was kind of the, the, the genesis of my First stage in my story. <laughs> Man, I don't want to say luck was involved, but preparation and luck kind of goes hand in hand. You didn't even have a college education, but you got on board with these people. You know what I mean? Yeah. And real talk, a lot of us didn't go to college. You know, mm -hmm. we are the normal Joes. We are the regular Joes. Just tell me what was behind that, behind that inspiration. Like, how did you see Amgen? I, I, I know it, it might have been placed on your table, you know. I think a lot of it was luck. I mean, I'll be honest with you, it was. I don't, right. take that. I don't think I deserved to make that sort of money. I don't think anybody did back then. Maybe the guys who invented the, the drugs, but secretaries driving, you know, making millions of dollars like that, that was... That was that's you know kind of one of those casino bet things, and you come up triple seven or something. I mean that was unusual. Um, but the interesting thing about it, I won't take credit for that, but it was interesting because I saw what money did to people, and I didn't like it. Um, you know, I, I never really did what I was doing for money. It was never my primary goal. My primary goal was to do the software stuff that I was doing, but. As it happened, um, I got a phone call from Australia. My mother had a car accident and I had to go back down there and take care of her. And when I went back, she was she had um, on uh, first stage dementia. Um, she was getting old. My father had passed away. And so she was the last one left. And so I had to take care of her. So I said to my wife, we have to move to Australia. I'm going to quit my job. We'll take our winnings off the table, sell the house and we'll move back. And uh, it sounded okay, and we decided to do it. We got back there and um, settled down. I bought a, a house back in my hometown. I, I tried to reacclimatize myself with my friends and you know people I grew up with, um, but I was a different person. I'd become a totally different person. I was exposed to the rest of the world, and they hadn't been, and it was very, very hard to have conversations. You know, they 
they didn't connect. Um, so any, any, what, what happened, I think, is unbeknownst to me and unexpected, um, my wife ended up leaving. We got a divorce. Uh, she, I don't know if it was that she didn't handle the transition to Australia's like I did because I was going back home. But some people are more probably more able to travel or able to acclimatise better than others. And I just don't think that, I think really, to be honest with you, I was 32 and I pretty much had said, I don't need to work anymore. I can retire. Worst thing in the world. Because a kid at 32, a kid, a man at 32, shouldn't be not pursuing their dreams. You know, your life didn't end. You just start another chapter. But I hadn't come to that conclusion. I was sort of naive. I, I said, you know what, I've done this thing. It's epic. Um, I'm real excited about what I did. Let me, let me take a break for a while. Okay, well, that's fine. You can take a year off or whatever and then reassess what you want to be. But I think that I was sending the wrong message to everybody like, all right, this is it. We're done now. That's like a nah. <laughs> it's not like that. And then what? So when she left, half the money left. Now I've got this house, which I decided I wanted to keep, but I had to mortgage it to pay her share of it out. And I was kind of pretty depressed because at this point I'd gone from kind of hero to zero. <laughs> well, from zero to hero to he back to zero again. Um, and then what I realized was that um, I was in this kind of depressing, dark space. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't very happy at all. Um, and I think that as a result of that, I, I kind of fell into this place where um, friends would come over and they'd see how, you know, depressed I was. And they were saying, dude, come on, let's go, let's get, let's go to the pub or let's, let's do something. Just, you know, you got to get out of this mindset. And one day they said, well, you know, we're going for a New Year's Eve holiday. We're going to the other side of the country on a road trip. You need to come with us. You can't be sitting around here all by yourself on the, in the holidays. So I sort of, I said, okay, whatever. So I ended up in the back of a car, drove, drove all the way. On the way back, um, we had this massive car accident in the outback in Australia, um, high speed Front, you know, full-on impact front collision. It killed the girl who was sitting in the passenger seat in front of me. I was in the rear seat and it left me in a coma and, and pretty much disabled and half of my body was destroyed from this thing. And, um, but I was lucky to survive it. And so I, I ended up in this hospital in Australia unexpectedly. So I'd gone, you can imagine this whole, downward spiral right you've gone back to your home country to look after your mum then your a wife has left you they're not and your money is starting to go and then all of a sudden you've got this situation where you're now you wake up after being in a coma for six days in a hospital and half your body doesn't work and you're like oh I guess this is this is what bad looks like <laughs> so so, all right, so I'm like, you know, but I always said to myself, if I can use my hands, my, my hands and my fingers and my legs work, I can deal with this, right? And I did. And I began, I began a long sort of struggle and journey to kind of recuperate myself and get back to walking again and, 
and get back to normal sort of life. But in the middle of it, all of the money of this supposed socialized free medical system that Australia has um, was taken off the table for my treatments because there was a criminal case against my friend who was the driver of the car for negligent homicide. And insurance companies, when they smell anything like an, a you know, criminal case, they're like, oh, all bets are off. We're not paying squat. There's a, you know. And I'm like, yeah, well, how about me? I was in the back seat. I'm here needing attention and you've shut off the money supply. So I had to pay for most of it for most out of my own pocket, which basically let me, left me dead broke. And then um, go after the insurance company after all the dust had settled and they realized there wasn't a criminal case and sue them for their month, their you know re reimbursement of all of this. That went on for eight years. I ended up getting remarried. Uh, we had a daughter. And then one day I got a phone call from a friend of mine in Los Angeles who I used to work with in Amgen, uh, who called me up and said, you need to come over here. There's this thing called the dot-com boom. We need you bad because you've got the skills and we'll pay you for consulting. Just get on a plane. Um, so I did. And I went back there and I realized just how much the economy had changed since I was gone and what the world looked like now. So I called my wife up and I said, listen, we put everything in storage, lock the house down, put the cars in the garage, get your butt on a plane, come over here. We're going to start a life in the States. And she's like, okay. So we ended up landing back in LA. And then I had to begin the whole process literally with nothing. I mean, a suitcase of clothes. I had to do it all over again. But at least this time I had a couple of contacts. So they led to consulting and contract work. And um, but then the first 12 months of all the money I made went to fund reestablishing myself in another country again. I had no credit because I'd been away too long. My credit history was gone. I, I had to buy a, to buy a car. I had to pay cash for it. To buy furniture, I had to pay cash. I had to put three months of rent down as a deposit to rent a house in mm -hmm. Southern California. So it was it was it was hard. But I said, you know what? I've been through worse. <laughs> and this is a running theme, you know, when, you, when you've been pulled out of a wreckage of a car and you're in pieces and you put yourself back together again with no help from anybody other than yourself, it kind of hardens you, right? You, you kind of feel like, well, if I can get through that, I can get through anything, man. <laughs> and that became a running theme because now I'm, I'm like, I've had the taste of success, but I didn't feel like I earned it. I've definitely had the taste of failure and that hurt. I don't want that again. So maybe now I find myself in this country that I, you know, I know and I know people. Maybe I can do it on my own now. So I did. We ended up buying property. I got into real estate. I moved to Arizona. I happen to see the advantage. Real estate is something that's a running theme in most of the stuff I do. And by about, I guess, about 2005, I was a millionaire again. Uh, no. every, and I was like, dude, this is, but this time I felt like I earned it, right? Because I did it on my own. I did it from nothing. If 
But what the first example of it was is it gave me a taste that anything is possible. It's like if you if you think that the external world is just constantly saying no to you all the time, you're in the wrong external world at the wrong time. <laughs> what you've got to do is position yourself in the right place and everything just falls in your lap. And that's what happened in the first round. In the second round, I realized that there was this real estate boom that had come out of the post 2001.com crash where Wall Street emptied all of its money out of stocks and it put it into real estate. So I had bought real estate ahead of that curve and it rode, rode the curve up. Um, so that was good until 2008 when I lost it all <laughs> again because Ooh. of a prime mortgage crisis and the global financial crisis. But I, the interesting thing is that in our quest to buy a lot of real estate, we actually ended up buying some still in Australia. I still had the home that I bought way back in the 90s, and we bought a couple of other houses. And as it happened, Australia went through this kind of resources boom, like China were buying everything they could from them as China's economy was growing. Um, and so property went up and up and up and up, and eventually... I was sitting on the, these houses that had tripled in price. So when everything crashed in the US, I cashed out my chips in Australia and took the winnings there, came back with it, paid off debts in the US and settled everything so it was stable. And I still had a bunch of leftover money. And then I, I went down to the um, real estate auctions that were happening in Phoenix which are kind of weird. They do them in this like open square. I feel like you're in the 1880s again and there's a guy in a cowboy hat and a clipboard and he's going, right, this property, who wants it? And this property, who wants it? And I just kept putting my hand up. Oh, yeah, I'll take that. I'll take that. I'll take that. By 2014, the I was buying properties like 20 cents on the dollar. I mean, it's ridiculous. Um, by about 2014, those properties had returned back to their normal value and then were gaining. And I had now made multiples of millions of dollars doing that. And I remember the decision to do that sort of thing. I was sitting outside in the porch with my wife under the veranda and I said, you know, we can, I can sit here and just get depressed and think that the world's giving me a shitty hand every day, you know, because I've had this up and this down and this up and this down. But I've, I've taken something from everything. I've learned something from every experience, whether it's positive or it's negative. I can, I can sit there and waller in my pity or I can say, you know what? I have faith that the world is going to continue to exist 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now. I have faith that I'll probably continue to exist for that period. Um, let's just put our money on black. <laughs> like, let's just buy real estate, right? And when I did that, it paid back because all of a sudden I took some very, very... now, And this is where I can synthesize all the learning that comes from this. And this is the stuff where the... This is, this is the, the jewels, <laughs> Um, I started realizing that I was acting in a way that was indicative of natural things that had happened from my childhood. And 
there were things that I never actually expected were significant. But looking back now, I start realizing they were. And uh, one of those things was that when I was a teenager, for as a sort of a pastime hobby thing, we'd all go surfing. We were lucky enough to have some pretty decent surf beaches near where, where I grew up. And uh, so when I started to learn to surf, I started realizing that I was immersing myself in something that was way bigger than I was. And that is just, you know, the waves and the ocean. And if I didn't master it, it really hurt <laughs> because you'd get dumped and you'd get a surfboard in the back of the head and you'd be, you'd have a really hard day, right? So um, I realized that there were patterns in these waves and that you could, if you were out there, you could start predicting things. You could see something emerging on the horizon. You realize that if you want to catch a wave, you have to be in front of it and you have to paddle before it gets to you. And the whole secret here is timing. And I realized that that simple skill was a recognition of what I call a universal truth. And that is that all things that go up must come down, right? That waves in the ocean, they rise and they fall. And if you can see ahead of them and position yourself for the rise, then the, the energy of the universe, the energy of the wave is what's propelling you forward. And you can battle, you can beat yourself up, you can have the hardest working time battling against that and you'll never win because the wave's always bigger than you are and the wave was always stronger than you are and you can slap it. It don't care. It's, if, if you want to put all your anger and your energy into trying to fight the universe, you don't belong in it. <laughs> You've got to learn to be in sync with it. And it is- Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow, hold on, hold on. I got to hit the timeout button, Miles, because you coming <laughs> out the gate, you coming out the gate, you spitting fire like a dragon. <laughs> and I got to hit the pause button because, man, I'm doing it for the viewers. First of all, viewers, go to the Unconstrained Podcast, beunconstrained.com. Listen, uh, too much info will be an info overload oh, you know, for, for, for the brain. Tell me what you, if I'm into something, you tell me where to go with it because I'm happy to help. What was your first real estate investment? Let's go there. That's, that's a good question. That's a very interesting one. So it actually was in my in Australia. And uh, what happened was there was this, uh, the city of Adelaide where I grew up is landlocked between the ocean on one side and a kind of a, a I guess you call it a mountain range, it's really hills that are uh, to one side. And so it's only ability to grow is north and south. And it had grown so far north and south that it didn't have the infrastructure in place so people who were looking to buy a new home who could afford one ended up buying at the extreme distance from the city center, and yet the work was all in the city. Um, and then one day, some very smart planners decided that they could build a tunnel through one of these uh, hills, these mountains, and interconnect a whole bunch of country towns on the other side of it with the city. And they could take what was going to be an hour-long commute for somebody who lived in the country 
into the city every day and turn it into a 15-minute commute. And I, I knew the topography of the area and I knew that if they're going to spend millions and millions of dollars to build a tunnel for this, you know, for like a freeway interconnect, that the real estate on the other side of the hill is going to be worth a lot of money. So my wife and I, she's really the smart one when it comes to real estate. I'm, I'm more the, the action guy, but she sort of saw it and she said, we should look out there and see if we can pick up some properties. So we went out to this town that was on the other side in, a, in the right area, in the right place, and we bought three single family homes. And they were not expensive, um, maybe a hundred grand each, something like that. But we bought them with mortgages because we could use other people's money here. We only had to put down a deposit and we'd saved up some money from our forays and, and whatever. We, had, we, could, we could sort of cobble together enough for a deposit. So we did that and we bought three of these properties and we stuck tenants in there and we sort of let the tenants pay the mortgage off. So we didn't touch anything. We just let it ride. The three-way hill construction, the tunnel got finished. Everything exactly went exact, exactly as we expected. The real estate went up three times in value in five years. And then we sold it and cashed out, paid the taxes, and then had that money available, which is what we then shifted into Arizona real estate, which is where we are now. So that began sometime around the time we ended up back in the state. So about, say, 2000, sometime around then. Um, we did realise there was a couple of things that were going on. We couldn't get a great deal of performance out of the rents in Australia, but we got a lot of equity growth in the properties. And that was because the government wanted to be involved in all of the business of real estate rentals. They wanted to put rent controls in place and they wanted to give tenants... Um, a lot more rights in court against evictions. And a lot of people were just playing the system and you'd end up being the victim of that. So, so we decided that it wasn't a good place to rent, but it was good for growth. Um, so we sold them and then moved that money into rental properties in Arizona, which had the, the opposite effect. It was a much better market to rent in, um, but growth wasn't as significant until much later. And then the growth did work. But again, uh, it was one of those, it's the surfer. I saw a wave. The wave was a tunnel through a hill. I, I positioned myself to catch the wave by paddling. Paddling was to buy the real estate. The wave came upon me, gave me an awesome ride. And I came out the other end with, you know, the profits from that. A lot of this happens all the time. You know, things, people are moving and shaking. A lot is happening, especially during this pandemic. You know, a lot of people are making maneuvers. I mean, I just find it so incredible that without, without what most people would say, education, that you were able to position yourself. Like, what was it that just, like, how did you have this kind of vision? You know what I'm saying? No, that's a very, very good point. Okay, so um, one thing that I've noticed when I compare my, my own results and my own normal day in the life, you know, life of what I do 
with my friends here who did the college thing. I mean, I've got a lot of friends who were like doctors and lawyers and, you know, they're, they're very successful in their fields. But when I look at everything that they were taught and trained in education, it was to set them up. So I don't want to sound conspiratorial, but to be absolutely honest, we are set up as a society to be a slave to banks. It's how we all are. And I, what I mean by that is that the one thing that I've learned in life is that rich people don't have jobs. That's a real fundamental statement. They don't have jobs. They own things, right? They own assets and they are able to sustain themselves because the assets that they own generate, I guess, what we would call a dividend, a yield. Like imagine a farmer who owns land but exists and thrives because the crops give the farmer the bounty to sell at the market. Very simple concept, right? It's no different than what a real estate landlord does by buying a building. They farm the building by way of allowing tenants to pay them rent to occupy the building and they live on the rents. It's exactly the same thing. It's how I work. Um, it's the same if people buy uh, any, any asset that pays a dividend, like a dividend stock, for example, buy a vending machine. The thing's yeah. just going to work 24-7 generating income. You don't have to, right? When I realized that, and being a computer guy, I mean, I love automation or whatever, right? I mean, being that, that kind of recognition there, all of a sudden I realized that I had time now because I didn't have to give it to somebody. I didn't have to sell it by the hour. Um, it wasn't easy to get to that point. And I started with nothing. So I know how difficult it can be. But I also realized that it's just about per persistence and stubbornness. And if you just keep at something, it takes time, right? Good wine takes time to mature. It, it, if you want to have a life which is about drinking 100-year-old scotch versus a life that drinks Budweiser, well, choose where you want to put your dollars, right? You're going to right. buy something of quality and wait for it, or you're just going to buy something because somebody told you to buy something, right? And that's become the essence of society. We've become this everything now. We need everything now. And I realized, you know what? You're not going to live now. You're going to live a life until you're, I don't know, 75, 80, 90 years old or whatever. So why are you putting everything on now when you've got to worry about then? Because all that's doing is it's going to mean that the older you get, the harder you're going to work. Because So that was kind of the, the, the simple part of it. I look, at, I look at things and I think, I'm not going to do something today that only has an immediate benefit. I'm going to do something today that has a benefit that's going to pay me for the rest of my life. And it might be a small thing. But if I do it every day, before I know it, it's paying me for the rest of my life. When I went through that process, that mindset, and started understanding it, there are all these side benefits. And the biggest one you get is time. When you've got time, 
You're not having to go to a boss. You don't have to commute. You don't have to do all that stuff. But you've got time. It's now important that you recognize that that's the one singular resource that you only have one of, right? That's your life. You can make an infinite amount of money, but you don't get one life. So what you've got to do is respect the time and think and constantly challenge yourself and realize that maybe what they're telling you is a lie. Maybe what is going on in the world isn't going to be found from a smartphone. You've got to go out into it. And maybe that if, if economics and money and commerce is about people communicating using dollars as a protocol, as a communication between them, then you've got to be a good people person, right? And your skills to be good with people are not going to come from sitting on the couch playing Xbox. It's going to come from going out there and meeting people, whether it's in your local community, your church, your, your job, your, your community groups, whatever it is, those things feed your ability to integrate, right? And to communicate and to do commerce and to make business. And then one day when you need it, those people will need you. And then all of a sudden the opportunities will open up and you're not having to promote yourself into it because they see you there and they go, hey, that guy knows how to do that. I might give him a call. Why? Because you're on their radar, right? If, you're, if, you, if you build a life of respect and communications and a really positive message to other people, it comes back. It comes back so many times. Um, and and this, is, this is where I, connecting dots is a real big thing for me because mm -hmm. when I try to connect dots, I start realizing that I'm explaining the world so different to everybody who's been told by somebody. You know, they're, they're telling some 18-year-old kid, sign on the, the dotted line of this contract so you can go to college. And it's only going to cost you $100,000. What do you care? 18-year-old kid doesn't know what $100,000 is, right? But he's going to put his, put his name to that contract. And for the rest of his life, he cannot ever get out of it. So I'm going to have to pay that money back and interest, right? Then by the time that happens, the, 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 the adult now has another contract shoved in front of him that says, you need a house, because you've got a family and you, you know, wife and kids and whatever, you need a house. So here's a contract. Sign this for this $300,000, $500,000 house in the, in the suburbs or what, whatever it is you're buying. And that'll be a 30-year mortgage. So 30 years from that date, if you just keep paying it, you'll be clear of the debt and you'll have the house, but you get to enjoy the house from day one. So... In, meanwhile, life happens. You know, you get a medical problem here that costs you a lot of money or your car breaks down or you lose your job or, or whatever. All this stuff happens. And you're scrambling because over the top of you, this overarching uh, structure says you've got to pay that mortgage. You've got to pay those student loan payments. You've got to do this. If you don't do it, you can't be in the middle class. What the heck is the middle class? Is that a class anybody wants to be in? a debt-laden middle class where everyone's living paycheck to paycheck to make some banker rich? That's not class. Mm. <laughs> that's that's mm. 
that sucks is what that is. <laughs> there are things that, that they don't teach you in college that are critical things that people are ill-prepared for in life. Home economics is one. The concept of producing more than you consume is never taught. Maybe your parents mm. are lucky, but it's never taught. And yet it's critical in being able to be free. And then the other part about it, a basic sort of studies of human nature. And, and some of these things are studied in college, but they're not studied at levels they should be. Um, have you ever come across a concept called Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Absolutely. Okay. Abraham Maslow, psychologist, published um, this pyramid, you know, where at the very bottom, you've got the physiological needs that we all have for survival, food, shelter, clothing, basically. And then as you go up the pyramid, you your eventual top of the pyramid is this what he calls self-actualization, the idea when you you reach nirvana, right? And then you can look down upon everybody else and you can help them pull them up the hill. That's the idea of it. Well, the problem is that nobody told anybody who studied that that it's actually an economic uh, paradigm because anything at the very bottom of the, of the pyramid is the most stable things you can invest in that don't change much. And that's where I'm a real estate guy because I love the fact that shelter is a basic physiological need. And without it, you know, particularly where I live in Arizona in the middle of summer, you will die. Simple, right? It's like being on a Martian landscape here. Um, you can't survive without shelter. And so when people pay you to use the shelter that you have title to or you own, then they're going to put that payment ahead of everything else because they can't survive. They won't pay their car payment or their cell phone bill or whatever, but they'll pay their rent because the last thing in the world they want to do is to be turfed out of their shelter where they cannot survive. And that's an important factor of why I like real estate as, a, as an area. But with all of this said, you know, it's, it's coming to these conclusions they only come because I have time to focus on things and I'm willing to think and I'm willing to question things. And I realized that the, the mantra of stay in school, study hard, get a good job, you know, work hard, retire when you're 65. Yeah, in the 1950s, maybe, but not today. That doesn't work anymore. There are all of these factors which go against that, that many of which are easy to understand in the short term and other things are more longer term paradigms. Like, the, and I, I, you know, I can go off on different tangents about my perspective on this, but I get a lot of people who listen to my podcast, read my articles and things, and they come to me and they say, you know, look, I'm a, I'm a father of a 17-year-old kid. And my kids come to me and said, what should I do, dad? What, you know, what sort of career, what should I do? Should I go to college? Should I go to the military? Should I go and get, you know, go to a community college, learn a trade or get an apprenticeship or something? And, um, you know, they come to me and they say, what should I tell my kid? And I'm like, well, that's a really tough thing to, <laughs> to dump on me. But mm -hmm. what I would say first and foremost is, does your kid know what makes them happy? And most people go, I don't know. Um, he really hasn't 
had a life yet. I'm like, well, there's job number one. Go out there into the world and find out from the sample platter of the world how it works and maybe in that process you'll actually find out what makes you happy. Then do that and charge somebody money for it. That's it. If you do it order, <laughs> yo, wait, what, what, were you, what were you saying? I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm sorry. No, no. I was just going to say, if you don't do it in that order, where you put your own personal happiness and passion, and your own sort of mission first and foremost, and then let everything support it, as opposed to I'm going to get a job and I'm supporting somebody else's mission and I'm now their servant, you will never get off that train. You've got to put yourself first and foremost. And if you don't know what makes you happy, your job is to find that out. And how you do that, well, that I can't help with that. I can say, for me, travel is a big part of it. Um, you can travel anywhere in the world relatively easily at the moment. Um, airline tickets are not, I mean, they are expensive, but they're not overly expensive. And the ability, you know, this is a European thing. They go and backpack for a couple of years when they leave school. Mm -hmm. Well, they're being told, get out of the nest, go out into the world, find out how it works, and you'll discover what makes you happy. Then come back and take that knowledge forward, and then you'll, you'll never, you'll be a success. I wish I had a sound effect right now to drop a bomb right now because, <laughs> guys, go to BeUnconstrained.com. Check out the Unconstrained podcast. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you. I would not steal you wrong. I would not tell you to do something that I'm not doing. This is some good information right here. What would be step one, two, three? If you start in over no bread, no money, starting from scratch, do you get a job? Like, how does that, what does that look like? You know what I'm saying? If you start from the beginning, start from scratch, how does that look? That's a, the hardest thing at starting it is you've got to first transcend survival. Okay, so that the idea here is that you need to focus. And again, I'll, I'll return back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You focus on the lowest level stuff first. You find a way to sustainably get the things you need to survive, food, shelter, clothing. Then on top of that, you add the things that are appropriate at our time. For example, communications, you need a phone, you need electricity, you need those healthcare, you need those kind of more utilitarian things. You've got to find solutions for that. For a lot of people, they spend all of their life just trying to survive, just trying to find solutions for that. But the way you've got to do it, particularly if you're able to leverage from things like you're still living at home with your parents or that you've got some, you're in shared housing or you've got some way of keeping costs way down. The whole secret is to find a way to, to make money that will pay for those things and gradually move yourself up the pyramid. If you start borrowing money from somebody else because it's the easy out, right? I need, I need to eat with the credit card out, go and apply for a credit card, whatever it is. If you do that, you will never find a way to sustain yourself. So the problem is that you'll always be working as somebody else's, um, you know, surf. 
you're always going to be doing somebody else's mission. You've got to do your own. And so you got, you need to be able to find a way to, to live, I guess we call it frugally or as, as low cost as possible so that you can survive but regain access to your time and look for ways to build up revenue sustainably so that you can pay for those things without actually having to work. That will let you transcend up the ladder. If you start there, you've got a shot at it. If the answer is, I've got to, you know, I need rent, I need food, I've got a kid, I've got to look after, all this sort of thing. And that means you're going to end up working in Amazon in the warehouse. They don't care about you, <laughs> right? Your mission is not their mission. And at the end of the day, a robot's going to take your job. So you're going to end up leaving there and working at Wendy's or whatever. I mean, it's just going to be one sort of like minimum wage gig after another minimum wage gig. And you'll never get off the treadmill because that's all you're doing to survive. What you've got to do is find a way to get the money required to survive from using assets, things that you can own or buy or invest in that will pay you back enough money to cover your burn rate. One of the things that I teach in my, in my podcast and on my teachings is the concept of knowing that number. You have to work out what your burn rate is. What's it going to cost you to live month after month after month? Just the basics, right? We're not, no, I'm not talking about some champagne lifestyle. I'm talking about the basics. You work that number out. And then your mission is to say, how can I make that number without having to do any work? And there are many, many ways to do this. Um, I like things that are easy. I like vending machines. They're simple. You can pick them up on eBay cheap. You put them out there. You fill them with products from Costco. People pay like a buck fifty, two dollars, two dollars fifty for a can of Coke that costs you fifteen cents. I mean, how can you not make money just plugging the damn thing into the wall and boom, there you go. So your job is every week or two, you go and empty your thing, take your coins, replace the stock, job done. And guess what? You got COVID, you couldn't work, your vending machine's still spitting Coke bottles out, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't require your human labor to do it. If you did that and you scale it up very soon, You've got 10 machines making you 500 bucks, 750 a month of profit. And all of a sudden, you're like, damn, I can live on this. I mean, okay, my burn rate, I've got it really low. I don't need much to start with, but I can scale this if I want. And then you take the proceeds from that and you apply leverage. You take the money that you're making there and you start socking it away into a down payment on a property. You need 20% down. You do that. You walk into a banker's office and you say, okay, I need a, uh, say, a 15-year mortgage because interest rates are so ridiculously low right now. 15-year mortgage on that property. I've got all this income coming in over here. You can see in my bank statement, whatever. I need that. I need a loan. Somebody gives you a loan. Even if you have to get some higher interest payment, whatever. You get into it. Get on the, on the start. Start putting your tenants in. Learn to be a good landlord. Learn to be a good property manager. And the next thing you know, that property is yielding you, I don't know, $500,000 a month profit. But that's not important. What's important is your tenants paying your mortgage off. So every single month that goes by, you're worth more. 
and then more and then more to the point where the tenants have paid it entirely off and you still got your vending machines and you still got your whatever else other stuff you're doing, getting commissions on things or whatever. And at the end of the day or amassed, you're making good money because you're leveraging off things. One thing begets another. You, you know, what, what's that old thing they say, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time, right? You've got to do these things incrementally, but the most important thing is leverage. Get one thing that's working and leverage off it for the next and then so on. You do that and you'll be where you need to be really quick. With doing that, like where does a person know I need to go here? The fork, when we reach that fork in the road, that's like, oh, okay, what next? Like, what does that look like for you? Or what the what 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 advice would you give for somebody that's approaching that um, you know, financial sustainability mark? All right. So you you know your burn rate number. So let's, I don't know what that is. For you. Let's say it's $5,000 a month. I would just hypothetical. Um, you know your burn rate number. If you can generate 150% of that, which would make it $7,500 of income that's coming from what we call smart income, which are income producing assets, your assets are generating you that money per month, you are financially sustainable. And at that point, you are, you are free because your assets are generating you enough money where you don't need to have a job. You don't need all of those obligations. You've freed yourself up at that point. It doesn't sound like it's that hard to achieve when you think of it that way. And it is simple, but everything around you is going to distract you from it. You're going to see the ads on the TV, you're going to see the internet pop-up ads to spend money on this, or you've got to buy this car, or you've got to, you know, these things are going to come at you from ever. You need to fight them off like they're the enemy. They're the mortal enemy. The roadside sign you pass on the freeway that tells you that you're nothing without the American Express platinum card or whatever, you've got to ignore that. It's a lie. And at some point, if you, if you realize that you've got to be able to break free of the hypnosis of the media um, and they're really good at it, and you've got to realize that you've got to regain your con control. You are the center and you have to apply the things that are around you that are presented to you into your mission. And if you don't know what makes you happy, you don't know what, you know, why you're doing what you're doing, but you're just taking anything that comes around because they told you to, you know, they told you to stand in line at 4 a.m. to buy the latest iPhone. I mean, what? <laughs> Who would do that? I mean, I wouldn't. I don't, you know, but, but people do, right? They're, they're, they're like hypnotized of the God of Apple or something. And, and I'm like going, how does this fit into your mission, right? Does it actually fit or are you just going to spend all your time on Instagram or whatever and that's going to become your mission? Because that ain't going to get you out of this rut. So it's just, it's just a different way of thinking. You've got to be very critical of everything that's presented to you. Know that most of it is a trap and the biggest trap is debt. And the only good debt is debt where somebody else is paying it off, not you. That's why I'm okay with mortgages for investment real estate, but I'm not okay in 
taking on debt for an individual's personal fulfillment. When you've made your millions, then go and make your lifestyle choices then. But you don't need them now, particularly if you're on the Maslow's lowest level and you're just trying to survive all the time. That's the hardest part, by the way. That's what will, um, it's kind of like, that's what, what, what will develop the athlete. It's that starting from nothing and learning survival, but don't do it by selling your time out all the time to people. If you have to, because you have no choice, I get it, right? I'm realistic about that. But you've got 24 hours in the day, and let's say seven to eight of those should be devoted to sleep, and there's still another 17 or 16 hours left, and you're going to give eight and 10 of those to somebody else? I mean, come on, it's your life, right? Give them just a few hours and keep the rest for yourself because if you've got it, then you can devote that into looking for the opportunities and the gems. And there are so many, people don't challenge themselves enough. There are so many creative ways to be able to play the burn rate income formula. Um, one thing that I, I never understood, and this is from somebody who came from another country, is that the United States is probably one of the most expensive countries in the world to live. I mean, the cost of living here, the, the unavailability of healthcare, which is in most other countries provided as a human right, um, all those things make this an expensive place to be. And you don't have to be here. It costs very little to go to the State Department and get a passport. And then it costs really very, very little, a couple of hours on a plane for most people, to pop over to Mexico. And no, there are not drug cartels that will chop your head off over there. If you want to circulate with them, I'm sure you'll find them, but they're not in the wreck. If you walk around the streets of Mexico City, you're not going to bump into a drug lord everywhere you go. I mean, it's not that's not how it works. But if you go down there and you start realising that the cost of living down there is like a fifth of what it is here. And then another thing which is an interesting observation is that all business now is moving to the internet. People who have been you know, put off the remote work and so on in big companies, many of them are being told don't come back into the office. We're not, we're not even going to renew the lease on the office. You can all work remote. Facebook did it this week. They said to all their people, if you want to work remote, work remote. Okay. So I could be in Mexico City and it cost me, I don't know, $1,200 a month down there to live like a king. And they got internet. Okay. Job done. That's how I make my spread. That's how I make my 150% right there. Um, if there's, that's just, I'm just throwing one option. You could, you could apply the same thing to, Belize, the Caribbean, South America, America Portugal, um, Czech Republic. Africa. <laughs> Africa. Any, look, most of the world is cheaper than here. <laughs> right, right. Not, look, Western Europe, no. Australia, no. New Zealand, no. But the rest, there's 200 countries in the United Nations and maybe about 10 of those are expensive and you probably don't need to go there. But there's a lot to choose from that are not. And I and look, I'm, I'm not saying that that's a good fit for everybody, but there's so many people out there that have taken advantage of this concept of being a digital nomad 
where they just grab their laptop and they hit the road and they're in Bali for half the year and then Chiang Mai, Thailand for another half and then Ecuador for months, Colombia, wherever it might be, um, they're able to do that sustainably and they make their money online. Now, that's not a bad solution, as long as it doesn't mean they have to be stuck by the laptop all day long because then they're going to miss out on the, on the beaches in, in, in Thailand. So you know, I think they've got it right. I mean, and they're out there. They're learning about the world. They're experiencing opportunities. They're seeing things they've never seen before. And all of a sudden, um, they become special. There's a, a, an old saying a friend of mine who uh, uh, lives, very very wealthy man, lives in Beverly Hills, very good friend of mine. And he said to me something, and I, I, he's Jewish, so I'm not sure if it's something out of Jewish um, teachings. I'm not Jewish, so I wouldn't know. But he said to me, there was an old saying, you can never be a wise man in your hometown. And what he's basically saying is that you, can, you need to leave and be different in order to actually get the respect that you deserve. And I've seen that as an immigrant coming into the States. You know, I, they, th they look at me and go, oh, he sounds like Crocodile Dundee or something stupid like that. But anyway, I, I get that. And all of a sudden they want to hear my accent or they want to, you know, the exact polar opposite occurs anywhere else in the world. An American goes into Australia, they're special. People stop and listen and they, you know, the authority there is coming because of the, the person. You can never be a wise man in your hometown. I mean, it's why, it's why so many jazz musicians in the States left the States and played in Europe because they could get money and they got paid and they got the respect for their skills. But back home, they're just another guy, you know. And it's, you've got to be special. Mm, so, so Miles, is this for the average Joe? Like, even if they on minimum wage, like, can anybody achieve this dream life? Can anybody achieve financial sustainability? Is it for everybody? Or because I know, and being realistic, somebody got to take the trash out. You know what I mean? Somebody got to be the garbage man. But is this? type of life for everybody what are your thoughts on that you know because from experience you're living it so we got to get we got to extract that genie out of the expert so yeah if you could touch on that you know what i'm saying well um the only person that stopped me from doing what i've done would be me i mm. don't accept the fact that anybody externally has stopped me. They've tried and, you know, adverse events in my life, like car accidents and divorces and whatever, have tried, but they never succeeded. And the only person that, that I wake up with in the morning is me. I mean, you know, my wife, of course, but I mean, what I'm saying is that I wake up as me and I'm responsible to me. So anything that is going to stop me from achieving what I want to achieve is self-perpetuated. It's not coming from outside. Things can be tough. Look, you get bull markets and bear markets, right? Things can be up, things can be down. These are normal parts of the universe. If we didn't have polarity, we wouldn't spin off 
because our north and our south magnetic poles wouldn't work. It's normal. Everything must be in balance. But within that balance, it, life is not a bullying, true, false. Now I'm showing my computer nature. Life is not an on-off switch. Right. You're not on or you're off. It's like a dial with all levels in between. And if you realize that sometimes when things are bad, that doesn't mean that you give up hope and you stop and you wallow in your pity because you're not going to get anywhere with that. And then when things are really, really good, that doesn't mean you go, you know, go crazy and spend money like a drunk with a credit card. You've got to take everything. Everything will eventually counterbalance itself. It's how our universe works. And you've just got to position yourself in that and realize that there is a time in your life when you might be the person you described, you know, minimum wage, you got to be the janitor. That is a time. That time will pass. Okay. And you've got to accelerate the passing by your inertia, by something you do. It's not going to happen for you. It's going to happen by you right? What you do will make that transition out of that cycle and to the next and to the next. You're the person who begins pushing the snowball down the hill. And eventually, if you push the right snowball, it starts going by itself. And that, that's key. But you've got to be the, the, the catalyst. There's a thing we, we learn and study. Um, and again, it came out of computing that I learned. It's the concept of entropy, and that is that everything in the universe will eventually turn to dust, right? We see it when you see crumbling old buildings and, you, you know, rusted metal and, and all these things. They eventually, everything in the universe will eventually turn to dust. You and I will turn to dust. There's only one thing that combats entropy. Actually, there's two. One is creation. You build something new. That is a polar opposite of entropy. And the second thing is you intervene and you maintain something so that it doesn't degrade. And if you're willing to understand that the, the catalyst of creation and the catalyst of intervention is the human being, we're the only species in this world who can do this. But we are the ones who have the power to combat entropy. If you do nothing, entropy will win and things will degrade around you. It's the normal way the universe works. If you actively involve yourself in creating new things and maintaining things that already exist, you will combat it. The thing is you have to do the latter in some capacity. That means you can't wallow in your situation today. You need to change it create a new situation, evolve it to something better. But if you don't do anything, it will eat you alive because the universe is designed to do that. So you need to do something. It's why our dollar is worth less every year where we talk about inflation and you know the value of the dollar and so on. That's normal. That's part of entropy. It's a universal truth. And the more we deny it, the more likely we fall victim to it. The one thing that I think is obvious that's coming from this is the fact that most people 
get up in the morning and they're like, oh, I'm going to go and work and pay the bills. And that's their life. And that's all they do. And they focus on that and they get in this downward spiral, right? And then they go to the mall and they start buying stuff to fill the void that's left from the end, you know, where they don't realize why they're doing it. So they think retail therapy is the answer. And that gets them into debt. And then they're further on the treadmill and they can't get off and they go down and then life goes by and years go by and decades go by and they look back and they go, what did I do? <laughs> what? And, and they have this thing they call the bucket list. You know, all the things in life that you, you, you want to do, you know, you've got a list, you're going to work that list. And the day will come when you can retire and you can work your bucket list. And unfortunately for 65% of the United States, the day never comes. They can't retire. Their life expectancy is being affected by the stress from living in this world all the time. And in the end, they never get to achieve their bucket list. Somebody said to me the other day, what's on your bucket list? I said, I've got nothing on a bucket list. Anytime I decide I want to do something, I just do it, right? I, I was watching this um, uh, YouTube channel for a couple of guys who were backpacking around uh, Mexico and there's an area down there, um, which I, I will butcher the name so I won't even try it, but it's where the pyramids are. They're outside of Mexico City. And uh, the Pyramid of the Sun is, I think, the second largest pyramid in the world. It's bigger than Giza and all the ones in, in Egypt, which I didn't know about. I mean, I had no idea that the history is so rich down there. So I went down there and to hell with it. I said, I'm climbing that damn pyramid. And I climbed it. And I, it, was, it was not easy. But I just decided one day, yeah, what the heck? <laughs> This is, the, why would I put that off until I've got a bad back and a broken hip? No, I'm climbing the damn pyramid today, right? And anybody who says, no, you can't get time off work or neither, to hell with you. You're not going to live my life for me. I'm living my damn life. And if my contract with you is that you can tell me that I can't do these things, that's not a good contract. I should never have signed that one in the first place. That, that's what an unconstrained life is. It's being able to do those things so that you don't leave your life with a bucket list of things you never achieved, that you do these things incrementally over time and you get to enjoy them and you let the effect of those things get into your soul and, and make you a, a, a wiser, richer person, not in money. Because money is irrelevant. If you're on your deathbed, does it matter how much money you got in your wallet? Only if you have to pay your funeral expenses, right? But it's not, that's not important to you. What's important to you? Family, friends, life experiences. Did you do what you wanted to do in life, right? The CDC tell us that the US male has an average life expectancy of 75.3 years. It's down. Over the last five years, it's been down five years. We are living long, we are not living longer. As much as they might tell you about the wonders of this new drug or that new therapy or whatever, we're all freaking dying here. If you don't seize that now and do something with your life that makes you, you know, that, that it is worthy, it is that one gift. 
that we've all got that we we just forget about. You know, time, it's not important. I'll sell 50 hours a week to Amazon or to Walmart or McDonald's or some boss in a customer service call center where I'm subjected myself to the abuse of everybody. No, I, that, that, I'm willing to do that. Yeah, because what? I've got lots of lives. No, you don't. <laughs> you don't. And that person who's offering you that job, it's a contract. It's a decision. Don't take it, right? There's better ways to do things. You just have to be willing to look outside of the normal social mantra and find them and then you get your life back and then you're unconstrained be unconstrained.com guys you will be doing yourself a disservice if you did not check it out the unconstrained podcast miles wakeham we 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 got him here live and and let's 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 shake some trees Right. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to make people stop thinking like they have been and be critical because it's not working. And until you're willing to say it's like a diet, you know, you can just keep eating the same pizzas all the time and the food and just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then the day comes where you go, I don't want to live like this anymore. I'm going to stop, reassess do things differently, change my path, and change my destiny. Well, this is no different. This is like a social mantra diet. You have to intervene and realize that the end of this isn't going to be very good. Need to change now and redirect towards something that's a far better outcome. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Another From Hood to Good banger featuring Miles Wakeham, of BeUnconstrained.com. Go check them out on the Be Unconstrained podcast. Man, it's a whole lot we didn't unpack here, but I hope you guys enjoyed it. Check us out on IG, From Hood to Good. Let us know what you think, and we gonna keep bringing that heat for you guys. Love y'all. Have a blessed one. Podcast Mondays. I am don't know what else to say right now. Yo, From Hood to Good, baby. Let's get it.